millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, May 19th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi is one of five states to pass all of its pre-K quality benchmarks. Then, Mississippians are being asked to put down their menthol cigarettes this weekend. Experts say the additives increase health risks. Plus, a program seeks to help Mississippi HBCU uh, students, HBCU students, pursue legal fields. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A research center has named Mississippi as one of five states in the country to meet benchmarks for quality pre-K education. The National Institute for Early Education Research found the state met all 10 of their quality standards for the year 2022. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Steve Barnett, founder of the Institute, about how legislative changes in Mississippi have improved pre-K. The State of Preschool Yearbook is based on a survey that we've been doing since uh, 2002 to track state investments in early education for three- and four-year-olds. We look at enrollment by age. We look at how much money the state spends on the program. And we look at 10 benchmarks for standards that support quality uh, because research makes it clear that if kids and taxpayers are to get what they should out of the program, it has to be high quality. Part of this press release says that um, the state, certain states and the country is about to see a large increase in preschool enrollment and preschool funding. Can you kind of explain why we're going to see those increases in the next few years? For the first time in 20 years, uh, we see a big wave of states committing to universal, to preschool for all, voluntary programs available at least to every four-year-old. And and while there are some states that have been doing that for more than 20 years, Oklahoma, West Virginia uh, are examples of those, Iowa and Wisconsin, the vast majority of states don't. They've been making slow progress. We now have California, Colorado, New Mexico, Hawaii, Michigan, Illinois, New Jersey, states that together have a quarter of the kids in the country that now say they're going to serve every four-year-old. And California is going to do that by 2025 or 2026. 
Illinois, Michigan by 2027. So these dates are not far away. One of the interesting key findings for the state of Mississippi was that they passed all 10 of 10 quality standard benchmarks. Can you kind of educate us on what those benchmarks are and what passing those 10 of 10 things says about our state's uh, preschool education? Uh, We set benchmarks for state quality policies basically the same way a business would benchmark how do we be the most competitive and successful at what we do. You, you look at what others have done that succeeded and made them top of the field. And they really fall into three broad categories. One is the basic materials or structure, if you will. What's the quality of your teachers? How strong are they? Do you have small enough group sizes? Do you have enough professional development? And then there's the what do we do to support the resources? Do we have the kinds of professional development? Do we have high standards for what we want teachers to do, what we want children to learn and be able to do? And the third group is really kind of pulling all that together to do we have a continuous improvement system where we use data to keep making our program better so that we know we're producing for kids, families, and taxpayers. Mississippi is one of five states that hits all 10 of those. One priority of Mississippi's legislature in recent years has been early learning collaboratives. These pre-K classes are designed to get students on track for higher reading scores. Rachel Cantor is executive director at Mississippi First. She says access to this quality pre-K education has grown since the report collected data. In the year after this report looked at, the legislature actually doubled the funding for pre-K. And so from when the data in this report was, you know, was the case and now is published till now, the legislature went from an appropriation where they doubled the funding and MDE has been actively selecting communities to receive that funding in the prior two years. So at this point in time, in real time, we actually have about 25% of four-year-olds who can be served in our state-funded pre-K program, whereas when this the data from this report, it was a much smaller percentage because this was before the legislature doubled that funding. Gotcha. They've got some state rankings here as well, and Mississippi's not too bad in any of them. The only one that really stands out is the state spending for child. Mississippi is ranked 41st. Like you said, we're going to see some big changes in the next report. Do you see that number going up as well? Well, absolutely. Because when we started our collaborative program 10 years ago, the first state appropriation for it was only about $3 million. And that inched up over time, and then we got to about $8 million right before the pandemic. But since then, the the legislature has expanded the program multiple times. So we went from $8 million to $16 million in um, the 2021 legislative session, which would have been for the 21-22 school year. And then we went from 16 to 20, and we're at $24 million now for the state-funded pre-K program, which affects about 25% of four-year-olds, like I said. So going from eight million a couple of years ago all the way to twenty four million now, that's why they're saying we're gonna see a triple in the a tripling in the number of it of um, students who can be enrolled over the course of time. 
explain why reports like this focus on these certain things? Why is preschool enrollment so important to uh, the education of Americans? Well, one thing we know from the research on early childhood education is that children who have the opportunity to attend a high-quality pre-K experience before school have better outcomes not only when they start school but over the course of their lives. So children in our state-funded pre-K program in particular are twice as likely to be ready to start kindergarten as the average Mississippi entering kindergartner, twice as likely. That is an enormous impact for those children. And the more children in the state of Mississippi that can have the opportunity to experience that type of program, the better off all of our entering kindergartners will be, the better off those children will be as they progress through school, and the better off our state will be. Coming up, Mississippians are being asked to put down their menthol cigarettes this Sunday. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. MPB Think Radio, whatever your taste, news, music, storytelling, or how-to shows, whatever your city, Gulfport, Hernando, Meridian, Greenville, however you want, radio, smart speaker, smartphone app, MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippians are being asked to put down cigarettes with a harmful additive as part of No Menthol Sunday this weekend. Medical experts say cigarettes are known for causing an increased lung and throat cancer risk, but they say menthol can't exacerbate the damage. Our Will Stribling speaks with Andre Nathaniel, project director of the Hines County Tobacco-Free Coalition, about how menthol-free could save Mississippians. The tobacco companies seem like they target the minorities' communities. And so for that No Menthol Sunday is a, a day that they want to honor that, that at least start somewhere, put down No Menthol products for at least one day. I've been doing this line of work for about five years, and without the work of the community, about the coalition, I wouldn't be able to see my line of work. Do you think that banning menthol products would accelerate the downward trend in smoking we've seen over the last several years? Yes, it could be a start. We have to start somewhere. If that's just a start, how should it be built upon, in your view? Well, by doing that, as that they wouldn't inquire the taste if they had just banned those menthol. That would be the first step. And so by them not having that menthol flavor what they used to, they said, well, what's the use of me smoking? And so... That's why I think that it will get the ball rolling. Can you tell me just like how pervasive this issue is in Mississippi in particular and, the, you know, a bit about the, the ways that it's damaging to public health? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a very big issue, especially the ones up in the rural community who don't have uh, our agri-education on about the danger of the tobacco product. So that's why this is the coalition job to go out there in those rural areas to educate them the harmful effect on the menthols, not on the menthols, the tobacco products, period. And so by uh, you being up in the rural area, you don't have access to a lot of information, educating a lot of things. And so that's all you know why you're, you're out there in the rural community. You don't have access. Some of them don't have the technology, the internet capability. So 
that's all they know what to do. In addition to the decrease in the smoking of you know traditional combustible cigarettes, we've also seen over the past few years a, a sharp increase in vaping. It's just this new way for the tobacco industry to get folks addicted to nicotine. Um, would you speak on that? You know, as as far as how concerning that is to you. Well, for one thing, the vaping and everything it could be more priceless. They think that it's a better way of getting away from tobacco. Actually, it's not. It's just as dangerous. And so and that is our job to educate them and do that too as well. So if they give them a menthol, they think that's a second alternative. No, it is our job as a coalition to go out there and continue to educate the community uh, all over Hines County on the danger of all tobacco products. By us getting information out there, you know, educate them more, it will make them think twice and give them different alternatives. And so... It is our job to go out there to give you sensation, deliver sensational material, um, go to different schools, educate the youth on why these products and everything is just so dangerous. Last year, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration began considering banning menthol-flavored cigarettes, and the final decision will be released later this year. Del Monte Jefferson is executive director of the Center for Black Health and Equity. He says menthol cigarettes are predominantly marketed towards and used by black Americans. 85% of African Americans that smoke, smoke mentholated tobacco products. And given the fact that 45,000 African Americans die each year from a tobacco-related disease, we can assume that most of those deaths are from smoking mentholated tobacco products. And so if we were to be able to ban mentholated tobacco products, we would definitely impact lives. Now, that's if the FDA took ownership and banned menthol at the federal level. Even if the FDA does not move in our lifetime to ban mentholated tobacco products at the federal level, we can support efforts to ban the sale of mentholated tobacco products within local jurisdictions. And we've had a lot of success doing that across the country. The FDA announcing that they were moving to ban mentholated uh, tobacco products last year. And do you think that it's the industry lobbying efforts? Is it that it wasn't as celebrated as they thought it would be? Yeah, well, the tobacco industry and menthol in particular, this is a multi-billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollars. So even anytime you're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, you know that the lobby interests are going to have an impact on what's happening, on decisions that are being made and on those that are making those decisions. And so menthol, uh, menthol is in every single tobacco product, every single tobacco product. It's not in the same levels to make it a characterizing flavor like you do with mentholated cigarettes, like you do with Cool or Newport. Um, It's not at those levels, but menthol is in every tobacco product. And banning of menthol would be the start of the end of the tobacco industry. And they know that. This is how come they fought so hard to get it exempted back in 2009. You know, the fact that they they were really, they were going to walk away from the deal. They were going to walk away from the Tobacco Control Act unless menthol was removed from that list of of cigarettes that were going to be banned. Tells you how important menthol is to the tobacco industry. Consistently, in you know, in every congressional district, uh, we've seen smoking rates go down, you know, over the years. But at the same time, vaping rates ha- have increased. So the tobacco industry has this new 
outlet for which to get people addicted to nicotine. So when you think about the fight against nicotine addiction and, you know, just putting putting stuff that isn't oxygen in your lungs. Yeah, the tobacco industry is way ahead of us. They are 10 years down the road ahead of us, coming up with products and different ways of getting us again addicted to nicotine, even coming up with products that they're saying, oh, well, wait a minute, these products here aren't really mentholated tobacco products like they're doing out in California now to kind of get around the whole law and the whole restrictions and the banning on the sale of mentholated tobacco products. They're just, you know, dressing it up differently. But again, that's their objective. The objective is nicotine addiction. And the tool that they use to get you addicted to nicotine is the menthol, whether it's an e-cigarette, whether it's in tobacco products, whether it's in stuff, regardless of where it is, they just want you addicted to nicotine. Coming up, a pre-law program in Mississippi is working with minority college students to grow diversity in the legal profession. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The MPB Public Media app just got an update. It's now easier than ever to interact with your favorite MPB local shows and experts. With the brand new Talk To Us feature, you can engage with your favorite MPB local shows anytime, day or night, directly through the app. Simply select Talk To Us from the MPB Public Media app's menu. There, you can leave a question, share show ideas, or simply just say hello. With the new Talk To Us feature, you have access to your favorite MPB local shows and experts anytime you want to talk. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A group of legal experts are working with college students attending Mississippi's historically black colleges and universities to help them consider a career in law. Attorney Sampada Kapoor is with the law firm Foreman, Watkins, and Crutes. She says diversity pipeline programs often cast a wide net, but this particular program is specifically designed to work with students in HBCUs who may have been overlooked. These diversity pipeline programs are generally short programs that offer support to students who have been historically underrepresented to explore and pursue a legal education. And usually these programs are headed up by colleges and they'll usually do it for a fee. So they're usually programs that students have to pay for. And the idea behind our program, the uniqueness of our program is that we offer a stipend to students and we offer them a program within our law firm. Um, And it's less of a seminar, and it's it's more of a practicum. So there are students that pay to learn more about whether they want to go to law school or not. Right. There are programs, like you were suggesting, where students can pay in order to learn more about going to law school. But this is a program for people who, who really just don't have the money to pay for those types of programs. I was thinking about that. I looked up the cost, the average cost, of a law school degree, 
and it came to $193,000 for three years, and that was in 2021, according to bestcolleges.com. They put the cost at $193,000. That's after you pay for four years of college. Right. How can people afford this unless they're wealthy? Really, it's just, it's impossible. Um, I think that it's a mixture of loans and scholarships, and really, that's, that's the only way to do it. I went to Ole Miss myself, the University of Mississippi School of Law, and they were very generous with scholarships, and I was very fortunate to have that, but if I didn't have that opportunity, it would not be possible. So I think that it's, it's the same case for most students. They have to depend on loans or scholarships because no one just has $300,000 lying around. What do you say to students to get them engaged in even considering this? So a lot of students actually are interested in the legal field, but because they are afraid that they may not be as prepared as other people, they don't see themselves ever achieving something like this. So what we really say to them is that you can do it. There are people who are just like you who came from nothing and they can go to law school and they can go work at a very prestigious law firm or, you know, work at a nonprofit or really do anything after law school. It really is possible. You have to kind of show them by example. How big is this program? How many students can you take at one time? Do you like visit a campus, see who signs up, talk to them, and then invite them to your office? Yes. So our program is kind of unique. What we do is we have an application. We have actually prerequisites for them to be members of a traditionally underrepresented uh, group, and also they have to have a minimum GPA. And so once they meet that criteria and they apply with us, then they can get into the program. And our program works a little bit different than others across the country in that we do two phases. We have them in a pre-law phase where they come in before they go to law school. And then we have a law school phase where they actually come back while they're already in law school in order to receive further support. There are not many people of color in the profession. According to the American Bar Association, blacks represent 5% of the attorneys in the nation, Uh, Hispanics represent 5% and Asians 2%. What is behind, is the goal to create more diversity in the field across the board? Yes, that is the overall goal is to encourage more uh, minorities to consider going to law school and kind of helping other people see themselves in the profession. Things are not going to change unless we have uh, more role models. So by increasing diversity, I think that that's going to help the overall problem. In a climate where there are places where diversity is not looked upon as being effective or something that's desirable, how do you get people to buy in? A lot of law firms, I think that they tend to shy away from this issue. And I think it helps that we are a Mississippi law firm. All of us are from Mississippi. We want to see Mississippi succeed. And it would be really remiss to not discuss 
that this ties directly to the civil rights movement. People have been historically shut out um, of the legal of the legal system, and this is an opportunity to open that door. And I think that that's sort of an effort that requires an, a buy-in from the entire law firm. Um, and we are really lucky that we have. I'm very lucky, I think, that we have a very diverse group of attorneys at our firm who really pushed for this to happen and talked about how this can change the legal profession as a whole. Um, and so that's, that's a very important thing, I think, in getting people to buy in is to tell them this is very, very impactful. Attorney Simpatico Kapoor is with the law firm of Foreman, Watkins, and Crutes, and she's helping coordinate a diversity pipeline to get more HBCU students into the law profession. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.